everybody, it's Trags, and it's time for episode 265 of Patriots Beat on the CLNS Media Network. Find us at clnsmedia.com and follow us on Twitter at CLNS Media. And for all of your Patriots-related news, at Patriots CLNS. This week, I welcome New York Times bestselling author Jeff Perlman. For any football fan in the 1980s, Jeff has a new book out that is, I don't know how else to say it, must read. It chronicles the life and times and death of the United States Football League. Football for a Buck is the name of the book. The crazy rise and the crazier demise of the USFL. Jeff, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Even growing up as a Bengals fan in Cincinnati, I was a huge Philadelphia Stars fan. Chuck Fusina, Kelvin Bryant, and uh, the late great Sam Mills. Uh, I happen to believe that wasn't just a great USFL team. I really thought it was a great football team, period, and fun, and I was so ticked off. When I went to Villanova and the Stars moved from Philly to Baltimore for the third and final season in the spring of 85, I missed out. I still have a Philadelphia Stars hat and pennant in my garage, I'll have you know, Jeff. Wow. You know, Jay Wright was a work in the front office of the uh, of the Philadelphia Stars, so there are a, lot of, a couple of Villanova connections there. I did not know that. I'm learning something not new. Not only that. Yeah, Jay, go ahead. Jay Wright's wife was a Stars cheerleader, and that is how he met his wife. I never, ever knew that. Well, that's terrific. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I uh, brought up the Philadelphia Stars connection. You and me both were fans of course, you had the talent and energy to write about this league. When did this task begin, Jeff? Well, I mean, I uh, you can go to the original original, which is I'm a senior in high school in Mayo Park, New York, in 1990. And my teacher assigned us all a final paper for English. It had to be 20 pages. And I pitched, I said, I want to write about the downfall of the USFL. And um teacher was kind of negative about it, but he let me. And I ended up writing 40 pages. It was a 40-page paper. And I had a sporting news annual from the USFL's last season. And on the back, it had the USFL's office phone number. And I called. <laughs> and there was an answering machine. Hey, thank you for calling the USFL, the United States Football League. We're not here right now. Leave a message. And I probably left a bunch of messages. Hey, my name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a senior in Mailback High School, and I'm working on a paper, and blah, blah, blah. Expecting, fully expecting a call back. You know, the league had been dead for five years. And the answering machine was surely in someone's basement underneath a bunch of cobwebs. But I wrote that paper, got a B plus. Mm-hmm. And was just eternally intrigued by the week. And, and 10 years ago, I started talking about doing a USFL book. But I could never get a book deal. No one gave me a book deal. And I finally got one four years ago. And here I am. If there's one thing you can say about the sitting president, he reads and knows everything about the sitting president, right? Mm-hmm. You would say that? You know where I'm going with this. Sure. Did, did you share an advanced copy a copy of this book with the White House? I just sent one to the White House a couple of days ago. But he's, um, man, he's avoided the USFL like, like anything. I mean, the last time he even talked about it was Mike Tolan's 30 for 30 about a decade ago. Yep. He just doesn't. And also, the you know, I'm not complaining, but timing is everything. And um, my book came out the same day as Bob Woodward's book. <laughs> so any, you know, any boost that we've gotten from Donald Trump tweeting about it was probably lost when he sent his 900th tweet about Bob Woodward. Well, that's why I'm here, um, Jeff, to to help you along and uh, maybe reignite the flame, certainly of passion for this football league. And uh, let's get to the cut to the chase. And obviously, um, 
President Donald Trump, you feel, uh, was probably the main reason uh, the USFL did not last more than three seasons. And uh, it's been well documented. I mean, he wanted to go up against the NFL, uh, which sounded foolish. But when you take a look at really what I think he was trying to do, even it was known at that time, and that is to force a AFL-NFL type of merger back in the late 60s, eventually 1970. And it just didn't work out. But what I found interesting um, in one of your interviews about it, you say, honestly, um, everything being said, Donald Trump killed hope of the USFL. Why is that? Well, I mean, you know, he, uh, I always say, I, I always say, and I think it's important, you could take Sean Hannity and he could spend a year researching the USFL. And he has to come to this conclusion. You can take the most liberal person out there, Chris Matthews, have him research U.S. about this conclusion. There's only one way to go about this. Um, the U.S. about was a spring league in 1983, its first year. Right. It had a, by most measures, relatively successful first year. Donald Trump buys into the league uh, after that season. He talks about how great the league is. It's all he does is talk about how great the league is. He's excited to be a part of it. He can't wait. Spring football, blah, blah. He gets a team. All of a sudden, we need to move to fall. We have to move. We have to challenge the NFL. What kind of? This is nonsense. NFL. He has a secret meeting with Pete Rozelle, the NFL commissioner, around that time, where he says, "I don't care about the USFL. What do I have to do to get in the NFL?" He's very willing to throw the USFL under the bus in order. That's why when I'm being serious about this, when people are talking about uh, collusion with Russia, and people said, "Oh, he would never do that," mm, yeah, not not quite. Like his history does not suggest that he is above colluding with an enemy power to sort of help his own needs. So um, he has this meeting. Roselle says, you'll never be in the NFL. I don't care what happens. You'll never be in the NFL. Trump then leads his march toward fall, and we need to move to fall. And he convinces the other owners there's a great TV deal waiting for the USFL in fall. And if we sue the NFL, we're going to win. And if I hire this attorney, they'll settle on on and on and on. And they bought it. They believed it. They followed him. It was all bluster. It's on them as much as him because nobody put a gun to their head. But they followed him, and they marched to the death of the of the league, and freaking pisses me off. Well, obviously, and um, you know, if there was one thing the owners who were in the league with him at the time could have done, what would it have been? I mean, what would you have, you know, in hindsight, and hindsight being twenty twenty, of course, what could they have done? I mean, there was one owner named John Bassett who owned the Tampa Bay Bandits, and John Bassett uh, said very bluntly. This guy's a con man. Don't listen to him. I can't believe we're listening to this guy. He is a con man. He's a huckster. The other owners didn't listen, and they should have. Like, that's the best advice. They, they followed this guy because they thought he was going to make them rich, and they never realized he was only out for making himself. And he, did, he did not care about the USFL at all. Zero. So um, my advice would have been don't listen to this guy. Stick to your original plan. Stick in the spring. The spring, is a great, the spring was a great idea. It truly was a great idea. Spring football... We're not going head-to-head with the NFL. We're going to draft regionally. So, you know, the team in Oakland will be getting players from Cal and Stanford. Right. The team in uh, Philly will be getting the guys from Penn State Pitt. It made sense. It was smart. Don't spend too much money. And they just totally ignored it. Well, that you know, what model that sounds like? That sounds like the old NBA. You know, the regional um, mm-hmm. uh, proprietary, uh, you know, ownership of, you know, players' rights. Um to a particular area. That's exactly what that sounds like. And, you know, I remember that at that time, and it's, you know, why, obviously, the the Stars had the Philadelphia, you know, we mentioned the Philadelphia Stars. That's why Chuck Fusina, right? Penn State was yep. uh, with uh, the Stars. 
Yeah, Chuck, Chuck Fusina, Scott Fitzke from uh, Penn State. That's right. Uh, there, Willie Collier, I think, was their other wide receiver from Pitt. Um, Kelvin Bryant from North Carolina was a general draft pick, as was Irv Eatman. But, yeah, they had a lot of guys, a lot of Towson State. Uh, oh, my God, I'm having a brain freeze. Their punter, who got Sean Landetta. Oh, yeah. Um, they, Mr. Yeah, Whiff himself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, he also was the best punter in the history of the USFL. So, um, Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, easily. He was a great – him and Stan Talley of Oakland were the two best punters in, in the USFL, and they both ended up in the NFL. Now, I know um, the real reason that you were motivated, I think, to do this, and, and you've said this publicly, this, is, this was a fun book to write for you. And every great book, I think, uh, especially about sports, is anecdotal, right? And what were your favorite stories to tell uh, in this book? Oh, man. I mean, there I, were so many. Uh, okay, let's let's I mean, pick a jump-off point, and because I know you mentioned him, uh, Greg Fields. His story is so hilarious. Um, yeah. I think it's worth uh, you know telling our listeners and our audience the story of Greg Fields. Yeah, because it's crazy. It almost doesn't make any sense. So um, I didn't know. First of all, I love stories that I I go into a project and I find them. Like I didn't know this right. existed. I had no idea this man existed. I didn't know the story existed. Uh, in 1979, uh, the Baltimore Colts signed a free agent rookie out of Grambling named Greg Fields, defensive lineman. Plays one year with the Colts. He acquires a nickname, Big Paper, because he made the least amount of money on the Colts. So he's called Big Paper. He, uh, the year, next year, he goes to the Atlanta Falcons. He's cut in training camp, but he refuses to leave. Like he locks himself in his room and says, I am leaving. Uh, they have to get an armed security guard to escort him out. Um, he, so, of course, then he signs with the uh, LA Express of the USFL. Plays well in 1983. 84, they have a new coach, John Hadle. John Hadle decides in camp he's going to cut Greg Fields. He doesn't really like what he's saying. He calls Greg Fields into his office. He says, Greg, uh, I want to thank you for your time here, but the truth of the matter is, pop! Greg Fields punches him in the face. He has to be called, uh, dragged out, kicking and screaming, I'm going to F you up, I'm going to kill you. Then he starts calling in death threats to the express offices about the head coach and the uh, defense coordinator. Wow. The Express hired Liberace security guard away from Liberace, Liberace's bodyguard, Nelson Mercado, to come protect the coach. They bring him in. He's tracking Greg Fields' whereabouts. He puts a tracer on his car. He uh, bugs his phone, taps his phone. Uh, Greg Fields starts showing up at practices and games, standing behind a fence, just scowling. Um, he keeps a gun in his trunk, according to Nelson. So all this stuff is going down. And because the USFL is just the craziest land on, on God's earth, uh, the San Antonio gunslingers need defensive line help, and they actually sign Greg Fields. And he shows up in San Antonio, and they have an article cut out on the wall that says, player punches coach, and all the coaches on the gunslingers greet him wearing <laughs> pads and helmets. Then, late in that season, the owner of the gunslingers, 85 season, the owner of the gunslingers, Clint Mangus, stops paying his players. He just decides, he runs out of money, he doesn't pay him. Right. So Greg Fields, you know, Greg Fields is not someone not to pay. So, um, he follows Clint Mangus home in his car. Mangus gets out of his house. He lived in a mansion. Greg Fields gets out of his car. He has a bat with him. So I see where you live. I know you have money. You better go inside and effing pay me. Uh, the owner, Clint Mangus, walks inside. He says, wait here. Ten minutes later, he returns with $10,000 in cash. Oh, excuse me, 17000 in cash. And says, um, are we square? And Greg Fields is like, yeah, man, we're square. Uh, no one knew where Greg Fields was. No one could find him. And I had two addresses, but no phone numbers. 
So I took my son Emmett on a road trip to Northern California. So we drove there from Southern California. And the first address, he wasn't there. Second address was in the projects. His sister answered the door. And uh, a day later, me, Greg Fields, my nine-year-old son, are sitting at a food court in Sacramento in a shopping mall eating Cold Stone with Greg Fields. You brought your nine-year-old son to yeah. meet this guy who yeah. <laughs> had threatened, what, two, three different um, USFL ownership slash head coaches in his past. You had, you had a fair amount of confidence that he wouldn't be like that when you met him? I mean, he's 60-something years old now. Oh, and, uh, I don't know. I mean, you haven't seen me. You haven't seen me, but I bent seven hundred pounds, and I'm six five two ninety. So you know, I, uh, I, I, no, I just, I don't know. I just, it's funny. I, I know I win worst parent award for that one, but it was actually this one. The whole U.S. of L. experience was a true bonding experience with my kids. Yeah, as corny as that sounds. Like, no, um, I believe that we found out former Jacksonville Bulls quarterback Ed Luther lives about a mile and a half away, just coincidentally. So I took my son on a mission to find Ed Luther. He owns a bunch of jerseys. My daughter owns a bunch of sweatshirts. It just became this all. Now they don't want to hear another thing about the league. They're completely tired of it. But it became this real thing, this family experience. So I just thought it was okay. So it worked out okay. Speaking with Jeff Perlman, author of Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Hey, everybody, I want to tell you about a great betting service. It's called BetDSI. BetDSI.com has been paying winners for 20 years. Use your sports knowledge to make some extra cash. Go online or to their easy-to-use mobile app. They have the fastest payouts in the industry. Play, win, get paid. BetDSI offers betting options for everything. Bet on football and other major sports, reality TV, even eSports, virtually everything. Try live betting at BetDSI where you can bet on every play, every drive, and every score until the final whistle blows. Use the promo code PATRIOTS18 and first-time deposits get a 100% bonus match on your money up to $500. Once again, use promo code PATRIOTS18 and first-time deposits get a 100% bonus match on your money up to $500. It's only a game until you bet it at BetDSI. Speaking with Jeff Perlman, author of Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. It certainly was that. Um, it's also interesting, Jim Mora coached a lot of great players, including Peyton Manning. That was not the greatest player he felt he ever coached. The answer to that question no. was... Uh, the great Sam Mills. Yes. And the Sam Mills story to me is really the USFL story, um, which is to say Sam Mills, Montclair State, Division Three, five foot nine middle linebacker, um, cut by the Toronto Argonauts, cut by the Cleveland Browns, in 1983 was teaching photo and woodshop at East Orange High School in New Jersey. Um, Sam Ortigliano, the coach of the Cleveland Browns, calls Carl Peterson, the GM of the Stars. Right. And says, look, he says, uh, there's this guy, I think you should sign him. But you're not going to want to sign him because you're going to see he's five foot nine. You're not going to want him. But just do me a favor and see him in pads because the guy can just play. Peterson's like, oh, I don't, five nine middle linebacker, I can't do that. Just, just sign him. Just give it a shot. So he signed him. And I would say Sam Mills not only goes down as the greatest player in USFL history, but for my money, Sam Mills is an NFL Hall of Famer and one of the great middle linebackers in the history of the game. I would absolutely agree with that. And anybody who actually watched him play and his speed and his leverage and, and, and just his uh, tenacity 
on the football field, forget the fact that he was such a, you know, a good tackler and a smart uh, linebacker, but he was just so tenacious on the field. I am with you there, Jeff, a, a thousand percent. And, you know, and if I can make a point, absolutely. If I can make a point about that. That really infuriates me. Okay. I'm looking at Sam Mills now. Sam Mills was a five time pro bowler. He was uh first team all pro one time, second team all pro three times. Uh, he won two USFL championships and was all USFL three times. Like, what infuriates me, and I just don't understand, is the Pro Football Hall of Fame does not count anything you did in the USFL. It's not, I don't get it's not that. on your plaque. Right. Why wouldn't it be? It's because I'm not saying, if it, I'm not saying the greatest player in USFL history who, who hadn't played in the NFL belongs in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. But if a guy played, like Steve Young, to have him in the Pro Football Hall of Fame and list his first year, as a Tampa Bay Buccaneers, when he played two years with the LA Express or Jim Kelly cheers with the Houston Gamblers. I don't get it. Like, I don't get it. I can't understand why that wouldn't appear in your plaque. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, the, there's an understanding uh, between the pro football hall of fame and the national football league. I would assume financial and in nature that they are not to be recognized, you know, in perpetuity, right? I mean, that, it has to be that because it's always about the money, and you know, there's no reason to hold a grudge. What thirty years later? Why would yeah. you? I don't know. I don't know. It's crazy. It's really crazy. Uh, to not mention, and I'm actually looking. This is I'm looking at Steve Young's Hall of Fame card right now. This is Steve Young, quarterback, six two two zero five. Brigham Young. Tampa Bay Buccaneers, 85-86, and then 87-99, San Francisco Bears. You're supposed to be a museum. Like, you're supposed to be a museum about history. Why lie about what the guy did? Why leave stuff out? For, you're not the NFL Hall of Fame. You're the Pro Football Hall of Fame. It really infuriates me. It actually is one of those The things. NBA doesn't it's do that. The, M- the NBA, or the, yeah, excuse the NBA me, uh, the Springfield yeah. doesn't do that, is what I meant to say. Yeah. Oh, it's infuriating. It doesn't make any sense. It's not, I'm not saying it's as important as climate change or, or you know, whatever, but, like, it pisses me off. It doesn't make sense. Um, okay, obviously, uh, we have a, a audience that is uh, very Boston-centric, very New England-centric. And um, tell us the story of Boston co- College quarterback Doug Flutie because, you know, when he signed, it was, um, you know, his, if I'm remembering this correctly, right, it was his first gig out mm-hmm. of B.C.? Yeah. So he, um, it's really a funny thing. I mean, you know, Doug Flutie just won the Heisman Trophy. And he was, not, I would say, not really an NFL prospect. It wasn't that he wasn't on the map. He would have been drafted somewhere, but he was not a top, he wasn't probably a first three or four round. He was a 5'9 quarterback. You know, there was no market for that back then. So um, Donald Trump doesn't know much about football, but he does know about selling tickets. And he gives Doug Flutie the highest contract, the biggest contract in the history of pro football at the time. It was a six-year, uh, $8.3 million deal with three years guaranteed. Uh, and what's really interesting about the whole story is um, past his prologue, I always think a lot of what you see with Trump for good and for bad, you can get straight from the USFL. I really mean that. That's not just me saying it. And the perfect example is he signs Doug Flutie and he tells his colleagues with the generals that don't you worry because the other teams are going to pay his salary. It's very Mexico wall. The other yeah, teams are going to I was just salary, thinking of the wall, but yeah, we'll sign him. The other teams will play. So he sends, him, he sends a letter that I have in front of me. Sends a letter to the other owners and to the commissioner of the USFL, Harry Usher, and he says, um, "I am doing you a great service." 
this is for the good of the league, and I expect you to uh, pay part of uh, Doug's salary. And the other owners collectively give him the middle finger. Like, we're not paying a salary. What are you talking about? And the funny thing is, Flutie thought he was going to the Generals to be a backup for a year because they had Brian Seip. And Brian Seip was a far better quarterback at that time than Doug Flutie. He had won the NFL MVP in 1980 with the Browns. And Flutie signed, came to camp. They were both in camp for not very long. And Brian Seip was traded to Jacksonville. And Doug Flutie's a starter. His first game against Birmingham, I think he... I think he went 0 for his first nine. That's right. He didn't complete a pass until the third quarter, and uh, they lost. He was a very ordinary USFL quarterback. Very ordinary. Got better, obviously. Uh, what about the Boston Breakers? Uh, I mean... Ah, it, that's it, my it, jam right there. That's my team. Yeah, okay. So, um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say their downfall was not signing a contract with Harvard Stadium or getting the deal done, per se. Maybe maybe they needed Donald Trump to, to get the... Um, deal done with Harvard Stadium because once they that didn't materialize it was a crescendo to doom I think I mean they were they were doomed in Boston right yeah you can't play they play in Nickerson Nickerson's still there right yeah it is it is yeah. they use it's it seated, for lacrosse and some soccer right it was seated 21,000 you can't have a stadium where you play pro football and see 21,000 um, there was no parking so every after every game fans would come out and find these $40 tickets on the windshield. You know, like, <laughs> there was a buffet. There was a bonanza for, for the cops in Boston, but it was terrible for them. The, um, the best thing about the Breakers are a couple of things that were really cool. Number one, they signed a UCLA linebacker named uh, Billy Don Jackson, who had been in, in jail for manslaughter. And it was typical USFL stories. He reports the Breakers. And two things about Billy Don. He, um, number one, he always carried a, a two-by-four with him wherever he went. Nobody had the guts to ask him why. He always walked around with a two-by-four. And the other thing, like just a piece of wood. And then um, the first time a, a reporter interviewed him was for the Boston Herald. And they met in a side room at the facility. And the rumor for Jackson was that he had eaten someone, bludgeoned someone with a tennis racket. And the reporter who interviewed him from the Herald, they sit down, and the first thing he notices in the room is a pile of tennis rackets behind Billy Don Jackson, and he's just freaking out because this guy bludgeoned someone allegedly with a tennis racket. The other thing is, they had a player out of Wichita State named Jeff Gaylord, and Jeff Gaylord wound up being a professional wrestler. But um, in college, he he uh, he did lots of drugs, he did tons of steroids, and his side gig was working at a strip club, a male strip club, where he covered himself in green paint and called himself the Incredible Hulk, and that was him. And the last thing about the Breakers I love. Well, two things. The quarterback was Johnny Walton, who had been a backup in Philadelphia. And by the time he came to Boston, he had this tremendous hitch in his throat. So if you watch him throw, it's like watching um, like a slingshot where you pull back and it pauses and then it goes. And um, the coach was Dick Corey. Yeah. And Dick Corey had this great, great – he was the best. And he had this thing where every game, home game, they held a contest where uh, fans could submit plays and they would run – They'd pick one play a week, and they'd run your play. And not only that, they would let the guy who submitted the play or woman submit the play hold his wires on the sideline during the game. So you'd be standing on the sideline, and they'd run your play. And they ran some crazy plays. They ran one play where it was just the quarterback in the center on one side of the field, and everyone else, the other nine guys, lined up on the other side of the field. They ran another play where they intensely had 12 guys on the field, and he would go, ready, set, hut, hut. And the 12th guy would just sprint off the field real quick. They outlawed that one after they did it. But it was all kind of fun. The Breakers were fun. They just played in a crappy stadium. 
They uh, most certainly did not play in a professional football facility. There's no doubt about that. Speaking with Jeff Perlman, author of Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Hey, Boston sports fans, do you want to get killer seats to see your favorite team for the price of a beer or a large pizza? Tired of paying all of the inflated markups from brokers or those last-minute convenience charges only to end up paying courtside prices for nosebleed seats? Well, there's an answer. Go to oneein100.co. Once again, that's oneein100.co. The novelty of 1 in 100 is that there's no other place online that's doing online raffles to win tickets to events. It's a totally new way to score tickets to your favorite events, like your favorite Boston basketball team. Tickets to events are hard to get to, and the good ones are definitely expensive. The cost to potentially score tickets with 1 in 100 is a small fraction of the actual ticket price. Score a pair of tickets for less than the cost of a beer. Your first raffle ticket is free after signing up. The experience of using 1 in 100, which is extremely fun and exciting, from picking your lucky number to the feeling of potentially scoring premium tickets. Feeling lucky? Well, try it at 1in100.co. That's O-N-E-I-N-1-0-0.co. Back with Jeff Perlman. One of the things I like about the USFL, Jeff, is it's n- it never pretended to be the XFL. And my whole issue with the XFL is um, it was Vegas on steroids, uh, pun intended. Right. It, it, it seemed too fraudulent and too, like, they were trying too hard. Whereas with the USFL, I think legitimately they were trying to be a professional football league, but on a smaller scale. And like you said, whatever, 10, 15 minutes ago, Spring football was a really good idea if it was marketed properly. Yeah, the XFL was a gimmick. I think that was Correct. the problem. That's it, the best. It felt part. like a gimmick, and it was a gimmick. And the USFL was not a gimmick. The USFL had some gimmicky elements, um, certain fan promotions that you know bordered on inane. But they weren't get. They these were professional football players who were playing to win. The league was striving to be great. It wasn't striving to be a gimmick or just to get you in to see to to see really hot cheerleaders. You know, that was not the USFL's right, even though some of the teams did dress their cheerleaders woefully inappropriate. Actually, the first game in uh, Los Angeles Express history, the cheerleader uniforms did not show up on time, and the cheerleaders performed in white T-shirts and their underwear. <laughs> so that's right, USFL. Um, that's, I actually I forgot about that one. Yeah, that's true. But, um, but they weren't a gimmick. It was spring football. It was legit. They had great players, a lot of great players. They gave a lot of guys who can get a shot in the NFL hope. Um, it was a land of, you know, wide receivers who maybe ran a four six forty instead of a four forty, but had great hands and just couldn't catch on. The guy, the fifth wide receiver on the team, was keeping four in the NFL. Those guys were a lot of the USFL. Hey, everybody! I want to tell you about a new wellness brand for men. It's called Hims, specifically for Hims. It's a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, and sexual wellness for men. Did you guys know 66% of men lose their hair by the age of 35? Thing is, when you start to notice hair loss, it's too late. It's always easier to keep the hair you have than to replace the hair you've lost. Hims connects you with real doctors and medical-grade solutions to treat hair loss. Well-known generic equivalents to name brand prescriptions to help you keep your hair. It's all at 4 No waiting room, no awkward in-person doctor visits. 
save hours to going to forhims.com answer a few quick questions and a doctor will review and can prescribe for you order now my listeners get a trial month of hymns for just five dollars today right now while supplies last see the website for full details this would cost hundreds if you went to a doctor or a pharmacy once again go to forhymns.com slash trags that's f-o-r-h-i-m-s dot com slash t-r-a-g-s forhymns.com slash trags jeff how can people order the book uh, everywhere, Amazon, go to your bookstore, jeffperlman.com. I have all the links. But, uh, it was a real labor of love. I will tell you, and it's the only league in the history of sports where a player was put on the disabled list after he slammed his penis in a trunk. True story. Of course it's a true story. You wouldn't be telling me. True. <laughs> um, true. I, I got to ask, um, you know, the, the, the cliche question. The bad guys won. The, the the story about the '86 Mets, Gunslinger, um, and, and your your other books. I mean, which are very very all New York Times bestsellers. Um, does this rank up there as as you were writing it, your most enjoyable? I I would say the that '86 book sounded like it was a lot of fun to write, just because of the stories of the Mets. Yeah, this was more fun because I knew what I was doing. Like that was my first book. Mm-hmm. I didn't really know what I was doing. That's a little intimidating when you don't know what you're doing and you're just trying. But this book, I felt confident. I felt comfortable. Um, and I just loved it. It was just so nostalgic. And the cool thing about it was, you know, the 86 Mets were still, they were a team of stars. Um, they were a team of stars. Hernandez and Carter and Strawberry right. and Gooden and even guys like Kevin Mitchell and Ray Knight. They were stars. Ron Darling. The USFL, while you had the big names, was a league of working Joes. And for them, it was the greatest time of their life. Um, no close second. So these guys are so thrilled to talk about it. And there wasn't any, there wasn't a barrier or there wasn't a guard and guys weren't hesitant to tell the stories. I mean, there's a story, this is real quick. I mean, oh, go ahead. All the, the time Gamblers in the world. A, yeah. The Houston Gamblers had a wide receiver named Richard Johnson and he went on to play in the NFL. And there was another receiver named Vince Corville, both on the Gamblers. This is Jim Kelly's team. And Vince Corville was a mediocre receiver. Richard Johnson was a great receiver. And before every game, as he drove to the stadium, Richard Johnson would smoke a blunt. He would just get high. And then he would play high. And Vince Corville wasn't very good. He was okay. He was fast, but his hands stunk. So he's watching Richard Johnson get high and then have eight, nine, ten catches a game. And he's thinking, I should try that. So before one game, they're driving to the stadium together. And Vince Corville decides, I'm going to smoke Richard Johnson's, you know, nuclear blunt. And he smokes it, and he gets to the game, and he jogs out onto the field, and he is overcome by paranoia and fear. Why is everyone watching me? Do they know I just smoked? Oh, my God. Is it, is it obvious I did this? Oh, are they going to know? Zero catches, zero yards. Never smokes again. Like, there's just a million. The stories are insane. Like, there's a guy, there's a safety for the uh, Birmingham Stands named Chuck Clanton. Great player. 16 interceptions one season, 10 another season. 1984 season, he, uh, his girlfriend is living with him, and she calls him, and she's at a club, and she wants him to bring her dinner. So he brings her Burger King, and she gets pissed off because he brought her Burger King. Who wants to eat Burger King? And the next day, she comes home and stabs him in the hand with a kitchen knife, and the, the blade literally goes through his hand, in one side and out the other. Oh my God. And instead of going to the hospital like any sane human being would do, he drives to the team facility to see the team physician with this hand, with this, with this knife coming out of his hand. And the first thing he shows it to one of his teammates, the first thing 
a teammate says, "Now your girlfriend, your girlfriend do that? He's like, yeah. He's like, I told you that B was crazy. You know, like, that's the USFL. The USFL is a million crazy stories. The book was easy to write because it was just story after story of joy. Uh, one more thing, and I'm, I'm, we're going all over the place, but that's fine. Um, mm-hmm. The TV aspect, how can you talk about the USFL and not talk about Chet Simmons? Oh, I love Chet Simmons. Chet Simmons is the first commissioner. He came from ESPN. Mm-hmm. He, uh, so the league negotiated its deal, its TV deal, before Chet was hired. And it was with ESPN and with, it was with ABC. And I think the owner, so the owners originally offered Pete Rozelle the job. And he obviously wasn't going to take it. I don't know what they were thinking, but they offered him the job. He didn't take it. And then uh, Pete, uh, Chet Simmons came along. He was a former president of ESPN. And I think they saw Chet Simmons as his TV savior. And he wasn't. Um, he wasn't going to get them a better deal than they had. He wasn't going to get them fall TV deals because no one in TV want, no one in TV wanted the U.S. about the fall. Um, and I think Trump sort of battered him and beat him. And eventually he was let go and they hired Harry Usher from the 84 Olympic Committee and he was ineffective too. They didn't hire the... Roselle would have been great. Obviously, you weren't going to get Roselle. They needed someone who, was, who could stand up to the crazy owners like Donald Trump and they didn't really get that. Yeah, it's too bad. I mean, I'll tell you... Um... My most memorable game that I ever watched, that I remember watching, mm-hmm. Chicago Blitz, Philadelphia Stars. Oh, you know, yeah, the, triple overtime. The trip, the Blitz led the Stars 38-17 in a playoff game in the fourth quarter, correct? Yep. It was and, like 100 degrees, almost no one was there. Franklin Field, right? Franklin Field, yep. right. Good job, man. Yeah, great game. There was some of me, I'll tell you the best game in my mind is just because it's so USFL. First championship game, the USFL needed a good championship game. In they Denver. needed a good championship game. Mile high. In Denver. Right. Right. USFL Super Bowl was at Stunk. The USFL was still seen as kind of rinky-dink in some circles. And they get the Michigan Panthers and the Philadelphia Stars. And the Panthers have Bobby Hebert, quarterback, Anthony Carter, wide receiver. They're very good. And the Stars, as you mentioned, Fusina and Calvin Bryant and Sam Mills and William Fuller, they're very, very good, too. It's a great game. Everything is going right for the USFL. This is the best. And um, But before the game, the USFL allowed Miller to give out free gear in the parking lot to fans. So by the fourth quarter, the fans were just slashed out of their heads. <laughs> and um, with a minute and a half left, fans decide they're going to storm the field. So you get like 2,000 fans storming the field. And the Denver police are under very strict orders not to let anyone do anything to the field. The game is wrapping up. The USFL is feeling amazing about themselves. People are high-fiving the press box. The commissioners are euphoric. Everything's great. Bobby Hebert has been announced as MVP. And then the cops start macing the fans, and they start letting dogs loose on the fans. And you're looking down at this World War III breaking out on the turf of Mile High, wondering what the hell is going on. And the next day, the story was supposed to be about this triumphant evening for the USFL, and instead it's photos all over of dogs eating fans. I vaguely remember that. And I remember that game, and this is when I knew I was hooked, I was really pissed off that the Stars lost that game. They they made a big comeback, if I recall, late, but it fell short. And my dad had just gotten back from like grocery shopping, and he was like, "What are you, what are you watching?" I'm like, "Dad, this is a USFL championship game. It's a great football game." He's like, "USFL? Yeah. What are you, what are you talking about?" And um, you know, and he he was he came home like at halftime. And he sat down with me, and he went, this isn't bad football. It's enjoyable. And um, 
that's when I that's when I was hooked and um you know I just I have great memories of watching that league. I was um as I said, I was in high school going to college, getting ready to go to Villanova, and I'm still pissed off I never got a chance to watch the stars at Franklin Field, but oh well. I actually think there's a, uh, I know your team lost, but an image in that game, the image of Anthony Carter streaking down the field yep. in those beautiful Michigan Panther uniforms, because that was beautiful, really beautiful. They were maroon and champagne, and they had the coolest helmets ever. Yep. And he was allowed, the USFL allowed wide receivers to wear single digits as well before the NFL did. So he was wearing number one, and you know, he was a brilliant player. He really was. And just like that image of him holding the ball in the air, crossing the end zone, what, to me, and I'm a USFL geek, is still kind of indelible. Well, I really appreciate your time, Jeff. This was, uh, as you could tell, pretty uh, enjoyable and pretty fascinating for me to uh, go down memory lane over 30 years ago. And uh, whatever you think of Donald Trump, whatever you think of everybody who ran that league and why it failed, it's still a great book to read and great, even better stories uh, within the book. Thanks so much, Jeff. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I want to thank everyone for downloading today's podcast. I want to thank our great guest, Jeff Perlman, multiple New York Times bestselling author and author of For a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL. Also, of course, I want to thank our great sponsors, Bet DSI, One in 100, and Hymns. For producer Michael Angi, our executive producer, Larry H. Russell, and the founder of the network, Nick Gelso, this is Mike Petralia, and this has been the Patriots Beat Podcast, powered by CLNS Media.